Last month, Coke announced a new limited edition beverage. Uh, of course. That's called Coca-Cola Starlight, a red version of Coca-Cola with a flavor that's quote unquote inspired by space. This is just big red repackaged, I'm afraid. Now they're offering a new Coca-Cola Zero Sugar version of a limited edition soda. It's called Coca-Cola Zero Sugar Bite. And this is what their uh, director of strategy, uh, CNN, Coca-Cola Zero Sugar Bite makes the intangible taste of the pixel tangible. Is Coke not selling well enough on its own? Here's what's happened. The marketing department has nothing to do. Coke, everybody drinks it. There's no need to market it. So now they've had to come up with things like product placement inside of uh, video games. A two-pack of this new flavor, Bite, will only cost you $15. Well, there you go. Can you get it at the Apple Store? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint episode number 270. 270. I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. Over here sipping on my newest flavor of Coke called Diet Coke. Ever hear of it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to try this soft drink over here that is something that doesn't exist. And uh, we've just decided that's what this intangible object tastes like. <laughs> Well, welcome one and all to the show. Certainly appreciate you tuning in. Love to have you back. If this is a return visit, if you're a first-time visitor, welcome. Touchpoint.health is the website. Again, the show name, Touchpoint. Touchpoint.health is the website. Also the name of the network. So once you get over to the website, you may notice that there are other shows there. So dig around. Uh, really cool topics. Would love for you to check some of those out while you're there. Uh, you'll notice up at the top something called the TPS report. Click on that. Name, email address, all we're looking for. And what that does is it will start getting you an email. One email per week, Monday mornings, five articles to start your week. That's it. We've got a cool topic for today. Look forward to jumping in. So we'll take a quick pause here so you can go do that. And then we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com touchpoint. That's reputation.com touchpoint. 
where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Last week, Reed, we were talking a lot about digital health, and it was an interesting conversation that we had. Uh, Today, I want to continue on a little bit of that conversation because whenever we talk about digital health and hospitals and health systems, it really leads to a conversation around digital transformation. So today, let's talk a little bit about digital transformation and really the role of the provider in all of this. If you kind of peel this back, right, especially as we think about the provider side of healthcare, not that it's not true probably in some of the other areas, but specifically, you know, I think that's where my mind goes because that's where I work. That's where we both work is on the provider side. And it's very simplest form. It is someone providing care to someone else. And so to not take those people into account, you know, clinicians, doctor, nurses, physical therapists, dietitians, even athletic trainers, et cetera, seems like that does not make a lot of sense. And that's really, you know, if we look at this first article that we'll dig into from Stat News, uh, titled Digital Health is Overlooking Its Biggest Opportunity for Disruption, that's one of the first points they make, right, is that for years, uh, all the big tech companies, digital health incubators and innovators and all that kind of fun stuff, have been attempting to reinvent healthcare. A lot of times, not to much avail, right? We see all these companies that get cranked up and then 16 months later, they're shutting them back down. But they talk about the fact that they've ignored the institutional infrastructure issues that plague people who deliver the actual care itself. The aforementioned doctor, nurse, PAs, NPs, you know, things like that. Or they tried to replace that function altogether. One of the interesting parts of this article, and we'll link to it in the show notes, is that throughout this uh, conversation around aligning practitioners and, and, and providers into innovation, they do a lot of parallels to how the rest of tech innovation has occurred in non-healthcare industries and how a lot of the other tech industries have indeed done that, right? Try to eliminate overhead of the people that, you know, are doing the, the tasks manually, so to speak. One of the things they say here is that striving to disrupt healthcare by replacing practitioners is one of the greatest missteps of digital health innovation and transformation. And that was modeled after Silicon Valley's approach. Let me give you an example, Reed. Okay. Uh, Shopify, Etsy. They really upended e-commerce by allowing individual artists and artisans and even small businesses to reach directly to consumers through their platforms. Airbnb and VRBO also did that in with the vacation rental market or hotel rental market, right? And we think about Uber and Lyft did similar things with taxis and so to speak. But the big problem with this is how do we do this in healthcare? Because if you if you try to avoid that connection between the middleman, so to speak, the healthcare practitioner, that's not really their role. They're not middlemen that can be, as they called it, disrupted away. No, it, it can't be. I think it's interesting, right? We've solved for this in a lot of you. Know, you just mentioned, you know, Uber or VRBO or Airbnb. Actually, VRBO is probably the most common one that I use. I don't do you use Etsy or Shopify or any of those? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I can't speak to those specifically, but, you know, eliminating that friction is how those, 
you know, work. It's a better experience. And so uh, don't you think this has a lot to do ultimately with the experience? Absolutely, because I don't believe that consumers want to remove the experience with that healthcare provider and just work directly with the specialist or work directly with the lab tech. You still want to have a relationship with a primary care provider that you could talk to about your care and help guide you through the right healthcare decisions, right? It's not like we're eliminating them. We actually should be instead empowering them. Yes, we should be empowering them. I don't know why, why have we not included doctors, nurses, and folks like that? In part, because sometimes we think that disruption, transformation, or even innovation may not occur at that level. We know, you and I know on the inside, that there is plenty of innovation that occurs. It's just we have to create the right modalities in order to take those innovative ideas that's happening at the front line and really practically deploy them into, let's say, digital health solutions or what have you. I think the, the big challenge has been around that, the disconnect between how do we get their ideas and actually deliver them. We tend to turn more as digital practitioners I don't know. We tend to turn more to more of these innovators and disruptors and say, hey, this here's this cool gadget or this cool way of doing things. Let, let's implement it and see how it works rather than the other way around. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you look at like the Amazon or the, you know, whatever. What was the Berkshire Hathaway Amazon Haven deal? Yeah. So like you go to these companies that, you know, by the nature of who they are, i.e. Amazon, you just assume they could come in and do this. So to your point, and actually the point of this article here, it talks about the strongest healthcare companies over the next decade, and especially the next three to five years, they say, will be the ones that embrace a provider-focused approach to disruption. Provider-focused approach. That's interesting. So it's going to require, they say, a new generation of digital health founders and technologists that understand the, you know, really healthcare delivery and kind of what we're trying to accomplish and and that these practitioners are a key piece of that. You know, and Reed, looking at our own personal experience working with health systems, right? We know that the sweet spot is getting that provider invested in this initiative. First of all, from an adoption perspective, but also from a perspective of the fact that they have views on how things can be innovative. We just have to create that environment where we could allow technology to kind of flourish with their inputs. Another point from this article, it says that IT companies for so long have profited from building these technology silos that really create barriers sometimes between better care and and prevent healthcare practitioners from embracing these technologies. But Reed, why don't we do this? After the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about a recent report that was presented at HIMSS this year called the State of the Healthcare Report, which actually reinforces the concept that providers' involvement in digital transformation is critical and important. But we'll do that right after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, 
Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so we talked about before the break a little bit about the provider, you know, playing a role or being included, being a part of, kind of however you want to frame that, this this idea of disruption and kind of where we go in healthcare. Now what we'll do is we'll actually dig into a report like we do uh, a lot of times. These are kind of fun to go through because there's good data points and quotes and things like that. But HIMS, you know, everybody certainly is very familiar with HIMS. We just had the conference, right? just a few weeks ago. So anyway, this is the HIMSS uh, State of Healthcare Report for 2022. So we thought we'd kind of step through this. And this report looks at not only national, but international trends that are happening. It showcases current digital transformation that was obviously, as we know, accelerated by the pandemic. Now they indicate that we're in the midst of substantial change as providers worldwide adopt to these new technologies and models of care. We're basically shifting into a new way to deliver care. So HIMS, along with its partners, and the partners are pretty, pretty big partners, Accenture, the Chartist Group, ZS, they asked a range of healthcare stakeholders around the world about some of these shifts, advancements, and priorities that are shaping the way our care is starting to be delivered. There are two major things they're trying to address here, Reed, digital transformation and personalized care. Why don't we first talk about digital transformation? So the, they start off here by saying that 99% of the U.S.-based healthcare system leaders and 95% of their uh, international peers agree this important for the organization to invest in digital transformation. So conceptually, everybody's on board, right? I think, I think that's, hey, so should we you know, should we do this digital thing? You know, and everybody goes, uh, yeah, of course. Let's round that up to 100%, right? We're all in. Everybody's all in. Everybody's all in. And more more importantly, or, or furthermore, I guess, uh, they say the sentiment is especially strong in the U.S. where 76% of respondents from health systems rated such investment as very important compared to only 24% that said it was somewhat important, you know, and kind of on down the list. So again, three out of four put this as like, you know, a big priority. I think it's interesting too, they note out that 1% rated it as not important at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are they retiring? They get fired. I don't know what, what just happened there. It, anyway, and then that's, you know, that's higher than the non-US peer group. So just 62% of those say that it's very important. So again, in the U.S., three out of four. Very important, big topic. You know, I'm, I'm re- reflecting back on the conversation I had with Ann Stajahar in the last episode, and she said that we're seeing a lot of foreign entries into this digital health space. And in part because they've already been delivering on value-based care and some of the goals of our digital transformation here in the U.S., I'm wondering if that this number is reflecting that, right? That only 62% of them say it's very important because maybe they've already been down the path of this. Maybe they've already transformed. You know, if any of our listeners listening in that have a good understanding of internationally how care is being delivered and digital transformation, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us, let us know. But the other thing here is they say that the notion that many health systems are just beginning their digital makeovers might surprise clinicians because in the clinicians they surveyed, half of them assess their organization's transformation efforts as advanced or completed or finished, Reed. 
What? Uh, yeah. That's interesting, right? To think about it. Like, is there a perception that we're already there with digital transformation? We know that clinicians are really engaged in transformation. In fact, this report says 88% of them report that their digital skills have improved over the past year. So half of them say that they're done. Pretty much. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Our job here is done. We will uh, start a new podcast next week on some other topic, I guess. Anyway, so yeah, so 88% skills have improved. Okay, well, that's good. Furthermore, 84% say their organization requires them to use digital health tools. So most clinicians, they say, see the value in digital transformation with 79% reporting that they chose to use digital health tools in their own, you know, their own initiatives. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's good. I think that's healthy. I'm kind of concerned about using it on their own initiative because inevitably that'll come back to us as the Mm -hmm. innovation people and say, okay, how do we make this scalable across our organization? And that poses some challenges, but still. To know that clinicians are at that level, though, Reid, is really interesting because we already know patients are there. And this, this study actually pulls that out and says, patients are gravitating towards these tools already, smartwatches, fitness trackers, you know, this is a huge industry already, these consumer health-focused technologies. More than half of the people responding to this report internationally have used at least one such digital healthcare consumer device in the past year, and most users report a high degree of satisfaction with these tools. So the market's already there. Our patients are already there. Our clinicians are kind of experimenting with it. Half of them think they're already done. So that's kind of the state of digital transformation. Let's talk about the other big finding around personalized care. Yeah, personalized care. They say in here that more than half of patients in the U.S. and the U.K. reported that they believe their providers partnered with them to manage their health and that they were offered care based on specific factors such as their lifestyle and personal health goals. More than half reported they believe providers partnered with them to manage their health. I think that's actually pretty good. I would hope that if we were doing healthcare right, almost every patient would say that their provider is partnering with them on providing better care. But I guess this is a very specific kind of focus. And moreover, the HIMSS report aligned this to responses from clinicians, payers, and health system leaders, all of whom believe that personalized care is beneficial. Clinicians and payers rate increased patient satisfaction as one of the biggest benefits, while health system leaders say they're most excited about personalized care's potential to improve health outcomes. Does half, does it seem high or low to you? Hmm. Wouldn't you think that your your healthcare provider is partnering with you on managing your care? I mean, like intellectually? Like technically speaking, or I mean, do I really think, I don't know. I don't know how I'd answer that question, to be perfectly honest. And some of that, again, knock on wood, I've been relatively healthy my whole life. So it's kind of like, are we really partnered or do I just go there when I'm sick and I get a pack or a shot or something? You know what I mean? Is that really partnering? Probably not. And most of that's on my side of the equation. It's not that like they're not, they don't want to. Well, the report goes on to outline impacts to health systems, payers, patients, 
again, we'll link to it in the show notes. You can find it out, click through to it to get it. But we're going to talk a little bit about the findings for clinicians. So they say here that nine in 10 clinicians report ongoing digital initiatives within their organizations, according to this survey. And a person named Daryl Gibbons Isaac, who's uh, not only an MD, but a clinical innovation subject matter expert at Accenture, he indicated digital transformation is ubiquitous and it's happening even faster than we anticipated. So maybe all of these little pilot programs that are going on, these smaller initiatives, are creating a momentous groundswell that's going to kind of take over. Nine out of 10 doctors say they're working on digital transformation initiatives right now. Is that good? Do we want (laughs) nine out of 10 physicians working on digital? No, that's way higher than I assumed that would have gotten. They also hear that uh, in the U.S., more clinicians see their digital efforts to be at the advanced or completed level, as we talked about earlier, than clinicians in other countries. So 16% of U.S.-based clinicians say that their organization has completed its digital transformation. They're done. Where are they working? (laughs) How's that work? It's done. I mean, isn't this kind of like a website? We're not really ever finished, are we? That's what Gibbons Isaac said. This was so surprising to us. He was quoted as saying, digital transformation is not one and done. Their view is that these organizations have completed a set of digital initiatives, but the larger transformation is still ongoing. There's no end point to that, so to speak. Is there? No, no. Next category they talk about is barriers to digital transformation and the fact that they do actually exist. So I don't know. Maybe we should ask the 16% that are done on how they got around all these barriers. But (laughs) they also said that nine in 10 clinicians identified barriers according to U.S.-based clinicians' tools that do not fit into clinical workflow, lack proper training, and and like a clear communication within the healthcare organization, including our impeding efforts. So it's interesting, right? Because here's where we kind of come into the mix a little bit, or our departments around this idea of, of clear communications. That's interesting. Nine in 10 report ongoing digital initiatives, and nine in 10 clinicians identified barriers. Do you think they're the same nine in 10? I don't know. Which ones are those are done? 16% are done. I, I think the math gets a little crazy around here if you think about it. You know, comparatively in the UK, they say lack of clear communication is the top barrier for digital transformation. I actually think that is probably true. It's not really training. It's the clear communication about what we're doing and how we're going to do this. I think that that's probably a mis- misstated that the US-based clinicians should also be saying that. Ultimately here, they, they say that the purpose of implementing digital initiatives is to efficiently enable better outcomes and experiences for the patient. Nine out of 10 clinicians say there's barriers preventing us from doing that, yet this is such a noble goal for us to do. We're all in alignment that we need to do it. Yeah, and they even say it here, when it comes to personalized care, almost all clinicians cited that providing more of this model of tailored, experience-focused, patient-centered care is important. But that globally, uh, clinicians noted that balancing their time and patient volumes prohibit them from delivering more personalized care. Uh, Quote, unquote, clinicians realize how important this type of care is, but doing it well requires time that many just don't have. 
that's kind of depressing to think about, Reed, right? Yeah. It's like we're creating this environment where it's going to require more time to build that relationship between the patient and the provider, yet we don't have that time. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, it, say, it talks in here that since better digital tools can be more time for clinicians to focus on personalized care to achieve better outcomes, they do actually have this like, you know, this real, you know, skin in the game, a critical stake, they say, in advocating for continued investment in digital transformation. Again, there are not enough hours in the day. Digital transformation gives you more hours in the day. So that's good. We should do that. Yeah, I just think it becomes a little too nebulous for us to see that unless we're clearly outlining and defining what our transformation effort is. And knowing that there's a never an end point, are we just looking at an environment where clinical transformation, digital transformation is just ongoing smaller projects that ultimately build up to this larger goal of becoming sort of a digital first or a digital focused organization? There's some stats here, Reed, that we should probably highlight because they did ask the clinicians, what is the definition of a successful transformation? Remember, of those, the majority of them that think they're already done. But Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. they said for U.S. clinicians, successful digital transformation must be 55% of them indicate that it must be adjusted for the employee's needs, including workload, workflows, age, digital skills. And 56% say it should be adjusted for the patient's needs, which includes things like age, health, problems, location, and digital skills. You have to balance between both of these, what's good for the employee as well as what's good for the patient. I mean, we're seeing it right now, certainly with the shortage in workers. You just can't get them. We've had issues with you know nursing forever anyway, and now with burnout, et cetera. So I think, yes, I mean, adjusting the employee needs is necessary and probably appropriate in a lot of cases. One last stat here. They said that 57% of clinicians across all geographies agree that the employee's needs are in the top three factors for successful transformation. If we're not involving our providers in this transformation, almost two-thirds of them say that we're missing one of the top three factors of success. So how do we get the right people involved? How do we create that culture of innovation and transformation? Well, Reed, this reminded me of an interview we did a little while ago that probably would fit really nicely into this conversation. So we're going to rerun it again. It's an interview that we had with Shelley Pavone back from episode 188, September 9th, 2020, way back in the early, early stages. Shelley Pavone is a co-founder and CEO of Enlightened, and she and I had a chance to sit down and talk about her experience leading innovation at small and large companies and the importance of engaging with the right innovation experts at your organization. And spoiler alert, many of them are the providers. So after the break, we'll go to that interview. And then you and I will be back to close out the show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today, I'm delighted to be talking to someone that I just recently got to know through a mutual friend. But when I learned a little bit more about her perspective on the industry and some of the ways that she's tackling some of the big changes that are happening in our industry, I could not wait to get her onto the show. And that is Shelly Pavone. Shelly, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm excited you're here too. Now, many people listening in may not know about you and your background. Would you mind uh, providing them a little bit of a perspective on or who you are and how you got here? Yeah, of course. I've uh, been in the healthcare industry for about 18 years now. I started right after college in healthcare. I started working for large pharmaceutical and device companies. And along the years, I have spent time working for digital health companies, health tech startups. I've touched pretty much everything within the hospital from textiles to working in supply chain analytics all the way through to being in the OR and you know doing electrical engineering post-operatively, et cetera. I've seen a lot of different angles of this industry and really have focused in the, the innovation health tech startup space for the past seven years of my career. And I've, I've always been on the commercial side of the business, but I'm also somebody who really loves to dig in on the clinical side as well. It's just an interest of mine. You know, in another life, maybe I would have been a physician. It's interesting because innovation is something, it's a term that many of us use. And, and I've been involved in a number of different innovation projects, both within health systems, but also working with healthcare companies and startups and others. And I found that while it is a, a noble cause or a noble pursuit, there are a lot of challenges when you're going down the path of innovation. And today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because of your company, Enlightened is designed to help with that. Tell us a little bit about Enlightened before we uh, actually jump into the uh, the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Enlightened is really designed to bridge the knowledge gap between, I would say, innovator and healthcare provider. I've seen so many challenges along the way for healthcare innovations to succeed. They fail at a pretty alarming rate. Many numbers show as high as 96%. And you know, spent a lot of time kind of speaking to both sides of the aisle. You know, I've worked on the industry side and I've also, you know, worked with clinicians. I've sold to clinicians. I've brought them onto companies as advisors. And there's so much frustration, I think, on both sides of the aisle. And so we built Enlightened as a way to really help clinicians and those that are innovating in healthcare engage and kind of advance, you know, healthcare innovation for the greater good. We have a a network of clinicians that is vetted by us. Um, It's invitation only, but we also focus um, very heavily on diversity. We want diversity of thought and opinion. Uh, We pair them with innovators in healthcare, companies of, of all stages and sizes for consulting opportunities and projects. And we hope by and bringing both sides of the aisle together for collaboration, we can not only advance healthcare innovation more quickly, but we can also assist people in disrupting responsibly, which is huge within healthcare. Yeah, I think that's critical. When you talk about disrupting responsibly, there are th- landmines when you go down the path of innovation. Mm -hmm. And today, I want to talk to you about some of the things that you've seen in your experience, because you've been down this path before, and you've actually created this company to kind of help address that. I think one of the biggest challenges that I've seen in the innovation projects that I've been involved with is we don't seem to have the right people around the table when we even embark down the path of innovation. Have you seen that too? 
Yeah, I've seen that a lot. I think that's, you know, one of the largest challenges within healthcare because in typical innovations, right, you know, a couple of people who understand the market you're embarking on and you can really utilize them through all paths on the innovation lifecycle. But in healthcare, it's really difficult to get the right people around the table. And obviously those that are delivering care are busy. And also within healthcare, everyone is so highly specialized, right? You speak with someone at uh, an academic medical center, you're not going to be able to take that information and superimpose it to a community medical center. The same thing goes with those in the same specialty, you know, cardiologists. You talk to five cardiologists, it's very likely that they're all going to have a different type of specialization, Right. I think within healthcare, not only do you need to really work hard to get the right people around the table, but you also need to get a diverse swath of people around the table. And then the people that you have around the table for, say, the beginning of your journey, when you're vetting an idea, you know, you're clinically validating what you're doing, and the people that you have around the table when you're ready to go to market are probably a completely different group it becomes much more difficult in healthcare because you're continuously trying to source this type of expertise and an uphill battle in the first place. Obviously, expertise in healthcare is hard to come by. You know, it's expensive and clinicians are very busy. So doing that again and again and again, I think presents a real challenge for the innovators. Let's address some of those things that you brought up uh, point by point, because I think they're very important. One of the first things I clued in on that you were saying is right about focusing on the right type of people in terms of their specialty and expertise. And I myself have been in innovation projects where the critical subject matter experts or those people that were leaning in for that expertise around innovation, they just don't have the time and the, the availability to do that. And oftentimes, they're not even prioritized to be focusing on innovation. Do you think that's systemic of our industry? Or is, is that just a general challenge with innovation in general? I think it's a little bit of a challenge with innovation in general, but specifically in healthcare. You know, I think that a lot of Providers are really frustrated, you know, because I think what what's happened is in healthcare, we talk about healthcare innovation and disruption and, and everybody gets really excited. And I think that that's true of the clinicians as well. And a lot of them have wanted to roll up their sleeves and help these innovators. But what happens is when it comes time to drive adoption, right, we see a lot of blockers within healthcare. You know, you might have a, a clinician who's super excited, you know, they're an early adopter, they're ready to use this new technology, but you have to go through the hospital C-suite sometimes to get this purchased or give them the opportunity to use it. You know, we see this with pilots all the time. I mean, you might have some really interesting, you know, whether it's software or a medical device that a clinician is looking to pilot within their facility and they have to go through 10 levels of approval to even get the opportunity to use something for free. Yeah, I think the industry presents a lot of challenges because of the bureaucratic nature and because of the fact that there are just so many stakeholders involved that it's really almost nearly impossible to drive innovation within healthcare, which I think is sad. And that's why I think it's really important when you're gathering people around that table that you're looking at people that are not only, you know, stakeholders from a clinical perspective, but those from an administrative perspective too, because like it or not, you've got to get them all on board. 
And I think that speaks to the second thing I want to drill into is the, the right number of people involved, because I think that's also a delicate balance. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to predict at times, you know, how many people can be involved in an innovation project. But I do, I have seen in my experience that uh, oftentimes those project teams grow substantially, exponentially at times. And so how do you balance that? Are there any kind of guidelines or characteristics around how to determine the right volume of, of, of expertise around the table? Well, again, you know, I think that it's that fine line between getting enough perspective and having too many cooks in the kitchen. In my experience, selling into hospitals, they make decision by committee. So you'll have people at it every week, you know, you're, you're trying to balance that messaging to, you know, the administrative stakeholders and the clinical stakeholders. And when you are truly trying to come up with an innovation that is going to break through within healthcare, I would say err on the side of more voices. Ultimately, I think the problem is now is that we stop after we have one or two that validate what we're doing. As an entrepreneur myself, that's like a great feeling, right? When when we get some validation for what we're doing and it's like, well, these two people are experts and they like it and I'm going to forge ahead. Again, within healthcare, because it's so variable, you really have to make sure that you're sourcing expertise from all of the different areas within healthcare. So whether or not you are looking at different specialties, you need to look at providers that are in different geographic locations, those that are in different practice types, you know, as I had mentioned before, community hospitals, uh, critical access hospitals, academic medical centers, and then also certainly those that are treating diverse patient populations. I think as an entrepreneur, if you really look at each of those individual silos and you try to source a couple of opinions from each, at least you're in a you're in a good starting point from there. I would. Say. Yeah, let's focus in a little bit on the diversity piece because I think that's critically important. And oftentimes, we as an industry, we've built systems that we think work for the general population, and it's not just you know health systems, but also you know, health companies or health IT companies with not so much of an eye on diversity. And so, un- unfortunately, we may have built some biased approaches, right, or innovations. When you talk about diversity, what are ways that you see that organizations or people that are going down this path can start to have an eye on making sure there is a diverse group in the room, so to speak? Yeah, there's no doubt that we've built plenty of biased solutions in this this industry. I hear stories every day of uh, another, you know, something going to market or a clinical trial that isn't sourcing the right people. And I think that, first of all, We've gone down this path of having like this club of people who are used as the experts in healthcare. And if you're looking at your club and you have been sourcing expertise and opinions from the same five people for the last 20 years, it's time to disrupt that. We're talking more about diversity. We're talking more about inequity in healthcare. That's great. But action needs to be taken at this point. From the perspective of of diverse opinions in healthcare and specifically how it relates to innovation, studies show that diversity unlocks innovation. It drives growth. It stimulates novel thinking. It improves outcomes. And that's if they're what we're trying to do with innovation. And we need to source diverse opinions from within healthcare because guess what? Diverse opinions and diverse clinicians are treating diverse patient populations, right? They understand the challenges of those patient populations. From that perspective, diversity truly underlies the difference in the way that they hear patient stories. 
approach their problems and really speak and interpret that information. We have to look outside of the box. You know, we have to stop saying that we're going to talk to the same five people in the club that we've been talking to all these years. You know, we can't just source expertise through our networks anymore, because if your network is homogenous, then the expertise that you get is going to be as well. If entrepreneurs and innovators in healthcare truly want to succeed and they want to be able to, to innovate and, you know, treat diverse patient populations and they need to get out there and start finding clinicians who are treating them and they need to find clinicians that are diverse themselves. It's very humanistic of us to have confirmation bias. But I know that in, in you know, the over a decade I've been working in this space that we are very unique, us experts within the healthcare, in that we do come in with a lot of confirmation bias. We are actually incented to be very knowledgeable. And I, you know, I'm not trying to point any fingers at clinicians per se, but I often found that clinicians themselves have probably the strongest bias ever. Mm-hmm. How do you find when you're in you know, these settings where we're, st- we're trying to build a, an environment of diversity and openness, and, and, you know, that, which is the right environments to have around innovation, how do you address this you're right. You know, confirmation bias is is rampant in the healthcare industry. And, you know, I, I think it's easy to fall into that trap for anybody, right? We all want, we all want to have like affirmation of our decisions and whatnot. But I think being aware of the confirmation bias is certainly the first step. It's just knowing that that's the case. And really, I mean, I think just putting the onus on yourself to to go beyond that, right? Don't speak, again, once you've spoken to two or three people, purposely try to source somebody outside of your network. It's kind of crazy because in the healthcare space, you know, we think LinkedIn is the professional network. Like I have found Twitter to be a really great place to find diverse perspectives in medicine. Um, You know, you have so many clinicians on there that are vocal and and you have to find the clinicians that are vocal about inequities in medicine. You have to start following those groups and people and really opening up your mind to, you know, different ideas, you know, getting out there and reading the articles. Connecting what we're doing in innovation to real patient stories is so paramount in avoiding, you know, all of those biases. You know, reading someone else's story about a poor experience that they've had with healthcare looking into other types of clinicians who are on the front lines of making sure that we're addressing the inequities in healthcare and truly understanding what happens when we fall prey to things like confirmation bias and how that impacts such a large group of people, I think is the first step in helping us kind of avoid that. In my experience, I come more from a software perspective. So in, in, I, I've contextualized sort of this this as design thinking and uh, even like user experience design thinking. You know, one of the things that becomes very important in that is to ensure that we have a very clear understanding of who we're designing it for. And there have been experiences where we actually have clearly defined what that user looks like and always kind of pointing back to some of their key characteristics and and use that as sort of like a a focal point for, remember, this is who we're designing for. I think that's great, right? We use that in the commercial side of business as well with our user personas. You know, who, who are these people? You know, you have John in marketing and his you know, little icon is there and you're thinking about John when you're building your pitch and everything like that. But I think design thinking is is great to assist us in avoiding confirmation bias because it forces us to 
really kind of keep that person in mind the whole time. But it's the same trap that you can fall in in other areas, right? If your audience that you're designing for is homogenous, then you have a problem. Unfortunately, within healthcare, I've, ha- I've heard too many stories of times when there's a treatment or a drug where the, the actual concern lies with different diverse populations, and they're still filling the trial with a fairly homogenous mix of people. We have to make sure that when we're designing solutions, and we are, you know, getting those personas out there in mind that, you know, okay, let's look around at our personas. We certainly have to have a focus to our efforts. Mm -hmm. Something else you brought up at the very beginning of our conversation that I think is also critically important. You said something to the effect of the experts that you want to have around the table through an innovation process may change over the duration of that innovation process, so to speak. Talk a little bit about that, because I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, in healthcare, it's highly specialized and it's also extremely variable. And there is an innovation life cycle and there are different phases that we go through as innovators. And, you know, in the very early days, we're trying to validate an idea, whether that's validating it with the market or we're validating it clinically. And there are obviously certain people that are really great to help you with that specifically. If we're clinically validating an idea, you're going to have somebody that has a more scientific mind, someone that is very focused on the science piece of it. Or, you know, if you're looking at a digital health solution, um, you're going to work with people that understand the workflow within, you know, their practice or within the hospital who can help you with the UX of what you're doing, et cetera. But when it's time to go to market, those might be not the right people that you want to talk to, right? I think that, again, just as, you know, clinicians specialize, you know, within uh, cardiology or, you know, um, whether they are, you know, internists, they also specialize in different arenas within the hospital. If you're trying to drive adoption, you need someone who understands the, the network of the hospital, who makes decisions. You need somebody from an academic medical center and a community medical center if you're planning to sell into those two different types of organizations. There are just different levels of expertise and the same person who is going to help you in the early stages with your idea might not be the person who's most appropriate to help you grow your solution. And we build long-term relationships with experts, which which is fantastic. And I think we should, but I also think that we need to continuously source expertise for every stage of the innovation life cycle, because, you know, your company is changing drastically from a sales perspective, right? That person who helped you get the first couple of sales might not be the same person who helps you scale. And it's the same thing with engaging, you know, clinical expertise as well. Particularly as our industry is undergoing such radical changes now. I mean, the pandemic has done so much. It's forced our the healthcare industry in general to really look at innovative new ways. And, you know, many of the things that we do today are not going to be the things that we're going to be doing in the future. And so there's a lot of this transformation occurring. But that kind of brings up this age-old question, Shelley, that I always have. And I'm going to ask you, and, and I'm not necessarily looking for you as the, the final definitive answer, but I'd love your perspective on this. 
oftentimes it's been questioned around where does innovation best come from? Does it come from within like an integrated health system, you know, or does it come from without where you might have some people with different unique perspectives that maybe have not spent a lot of time in healthcare? Because we are now in a world where we're dealing with outside entrance into healthcare and, and innovations happening everywhere. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the fact that we need people who have, you know, out of the box thinking to come into healthcare and help. What I think is that it's both. We can't do one or the other. I don't, innovation doesn't happen within a vacuum. And I think those that are in the health system are already extremely biased. You know, they're used to kind of that inside the box thinking, you know, how do I get this idea to fit within the confines of this bureaucratic industry that I'm already involved in. And you have the people that come from the outside that may have really interesting out-of-the-box thinking, but unfortunately they have that motto and innovation, you know, that we repeat so often, move fast and break things. That doesn't necessarily work in healthcare either. So I, I truly believe that for innovation to happen in healthcare, it's collaboration between the two sides. Those outside of the box thinkers cannot disrupt in healthcare if they don't know how to drive adoption or get the people that are used to the current structure and system on board. And the people that are used to the current structure and systems just aren't innovative enough to do what we need without the people that are outside to say, this sounds crazy, right? But we're going to do it. So I I truly think that it has to happen from both sides and there has to be collaboration. Yeah, I guess that leaves the challenge of with every innovation project or or effort that you're you're undergoing, you just have to strike the right balance of having the right people. And that becomes, you know, a bit of a challenge. And that's what makes innovation exciting as well as sometimes very difficult to achieve. And that is what inspired you to pull together, and the little pun there, uh, your organization, right, inspired. Uh, and, and so it's great that we have people like you that kind of help connect the experts to the innovation projects. I think that that's really tremendously important. So, wow, what a great conversation, Shelly. This has been fascinating. I know there are people listening in right now that want to know a little bit more about you and maybe maybe connect with you online. What are some ways that they can actually do that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, certainly they can go to our website, which is um, www.getenlightened, enlightened is spelled with an I, dot com. Also, you know, I'm on Twitter at, at Shelly Pavone. We have our, our LinkedIn for Enlightened, as well as my own personal LinkedIn. So I would really encourage people to to reach out. I'm really passionate about healthcare innovation. I love to talk about ways that we can advance healthcare innovation and disrupt responsibly. And obviously, you know, Enlightened seeks to solve some of those problems with the the disconnect and the knowledge gap between those that are in the healthcare system and and those that are innovating. But, you know, aside from that, I think I love to engage with the community. So people should reach out. We will definitely put all the links in the show notes and uh, strongly encourage those listening in to click through and connect and and actually you know learn from from you and your experience. So Shelly, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really a fascinating conversation and certainly want to have you back on in the future to talk more about innovation because it's a critical, important piece of our industry. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Uh, really appreciate it. It's been great. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Special thanks to Shelly for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate uh, hearing from her again. Even though uh, we just heard from her the one time, we thought it was uh, so good, we ran it twice. So, certainly appreciate that. Look forward to maybe getting her back on again, talking about another topic uh, coming down the pipe. So, a couple of plugs. TPS report. Mentioned it early in the episode. Go over to touchpoint.health. You can sign up for it there. It is a weekly email. comes out Monday mornings, five articles to search your week. Also has some quick links down at the bottom to some of the industry conferences and education that's coming up. So that'll keep that front and center. And hopefully we'll see at some point this year. Yeah. So let's uh, maybe do a couple of recommendations and we will call it a day. What do you, what, uh, what do you got today? Reed, I'm going to recommend since we've been talking about digital health and we talked a little bit about the consumers using digital health devices, I'm going to recommend my Fitbit. I may have mentioned it before. I am a Fitbit guy. I know a lot of people have Apple Watches. That's fine. No judgment on my end. But I'm a big Fitbit guy. And I actually have, I'm wearing right now, the Fitbit Charge 5, which is the most recent model of the Fitbits. I got it for Christmas this year. And I really enjoy it. It's a really great device. I will tell you a lot of great things about it. One of the first things that allows you to measure, obviously, all of the, the, the major things that you're doing with your health, your step count, the activity that you're doing. Uh, it allows you to track your sleep. You can wear it overnight. It gives you a sense of when you've been restless in your sleep, etc. It also has heart rate notifications in it. It shows you active zone minutes. It's really just kind of led to me being more conscientious and mindful of my health. That's going to be my recommendation. I may have done it before, but I'm going to say it now. Uh, the Fitbit. That's my personal health tracking device that I really love. Nice. I am going to recommend... I don't know. I'd be curious if you have one of these or not. Uh, most people probably do not, at least anymore, but you probably have one at some point in your life. A clipboard. Oh, yes. I, uh, I actually have a clipboard in my office. I have a few of them. Uh, they were actually made for me uh, by my uncle uh, out of some mesquite off of our family place. Anyway, long story. But when I got them, uh, they're very cool, you know, because I mean, it's, you know, it's a unique piece of wood or whatever. It's really pretty. But I thought, like, I mean, what am I going to do with this? Like, you know, kind of a thing. And so you start trying to kind of think, well, do you you put it on a shelf, more of like a piece of art, you know, or something like that, or display or something. Uh, I've actually got a couple of them. And so I brought one up to the office because I thought, you know, I don't know why I just did. And uh, I've actually started using it and uh, kind of like it. Like uh, it gives me something to write on. Like when I go to other people's offices, you know, sit down for one-on-one meetings, things like that. I've gotten to where um, I try not to take technology to those because it helps me focus a little more. Like I don't see emails popping up or text messages and things like that. So I'm print out the agenda or, you know, whatever, you know, and I can sit there, take notes, um, jot down ideas, things like that. But anyway, yeah, clipboard. There you go. Plus there's sort of an added gravitas when you're talking to someone and you're writing on a clipboard. I think they, pay more attention. You seem a little bit more professional. I guess the That's right. people would choose their words more wisely, right? You, you just do a lot of like, uh-huh. And then you like write down stuff, you know, and then, <laughs> hmm, yeah. But yeah, it makes me feel very uh, clinical. 
There you uh, go. There you uh, go. Yeah. And then I put it in a little slot outside my door when I leave. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But anyway. Uh, well, very cool. Great episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Certainly love to hear from you. Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn is probably the best way, uh, one of those mediums to track down uh, Chris and myself. Touchpoint.health is the website, certainly. Uh, shoot us a note there. Would love to hear from you how we're doing, topics we should cover, people we should have on, all that kind of fun stuff. So look forward to hearing from you. Chris Boyer. I am Reed Smith. We'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.